So there it is. It's simple. Show who you are. Show your traction. Be very clear what this next round is meant to do and how, if you do it, it can be financially lucrative for everyone involved. Hey, everyone. I'm Mark Randolph, and welcome to That Will Never Work. On this podcast, I speak with folks who are at every stage of building their own business, whether they're leaping from side hustle to self-employed or are already generating revenue and ready to level up. My goal is to draw out their biggest challenges and then, using a combination of advice, encouragement, and tough love, nudge them just a little closer to realizing their dreams. While I'm known for co-founding Netflix and serving as its first CEO, my career as an entrepreneur spans four decades. Netflix was actually my fifth startup, and since leaving there, I've had the opportunity to work with scores of early-stage companies and mentor aspiring entrepreneurs from all over the world. Along the way, I've picked up hundreds of tips, tricks, and secrets, which I'm eager to share with my listeners. Helping others move their ideas forward has become my life's passion. So if you've been told that will never work as much as I have, you've come to the right place. Together, we'll prove the naysayers wrong. Today, a lesson in taking your startup from the garage, in this case, quite literally, to full funding. My guests today are PJ and Lori, accidental entrepreneurs who were unable to find a camper van they liked, so of course they decided to build their own. Fast forward to today and Mod Vans is a real business, producing four different models and ready to scale up. So buckle up for a one-on-one on the art of pitching as I give PJ and Lori all my best tips on how to find and woo investors. So PJ and Lori, it's great to have you on That Will Never Work. I've been looking forward to this call, actually, since, first of all, you're further along than most entrepreneurs. Probably most of them would envy the position that you are in right now. But also, it's kind of interesting because you're in an interesting category. I mean, one that I guess I knew existed, but didn't really know anything about. In fact, still know nothing about, which is kind of why I'm curious to talk to you. So I think the best way for us to start here is I'd love you to give me a brief summary of your journey. What gave you the incentive to start this? What problem are you solving? Where have you gotten to? And then maybe you could kind of gracefully segue into what it is that you want to talk about today. Okay. Well, we're excited to be here, Mark. Thanks for having us. Yeah, thank you. So the problem we're solving originally was for ourselves, and it turned out to be a problem that we are now solving for a lot of other people. We do a lot of outdoor activity and we had a big RV and it just didn't really work for us. We wanted something that we could use more and was more practical for us. And so PJ actually built a van for us in our driveway. Everywhere he went, people would ask about it. Where'd you get it? Where can I get one? That kind of thing. I got to back you up here, uh, Lori built a van in the driveway. So yes. my first question is, as opposed to going down to the Ford dealership and buying a van, that wasn't okay for you? Well, so he did actually buy a Ford Transit van that he parked in the driveway and looked at for a while because we were on a list <laughs> at another van company to get a custom build, and it was an 18-month wait. And at the time, PJ was doing some consulting had some free time. He's an engineer. He's built a lot of things, cars, house additions, furniture. 
software. Software is really what he builds. But um, anyway, I thought he was crazy. We went out in the driveway. He was like cutting up metal and welding and cutting the van apart. And a few giant holes in it. Yeah. (laughs) So yes, he went out and with his hands and some tools in our driveway, in our garage, built the first van. We did have a pop-up top installed by a company. But other than that, PJ did work. Since people have no clue what your business is, I'll point out that when you say one definition of van is one of those things where you open the two doors in the back and there's a big empty space Mm -hmm. that you load your piano or your sofa into. When you say he went out and built a van, you're referring to basically a mini house on wheels. Is that kind of what I'm picking up here? Correct. We started out with the van you described, an empty cargo van, and we install RV components, but we also install enough safe, comfortable seating to bring passengers along. So PJ really did a great job designing it. So it would be multi-purpose. What we do is we build vans that are like three vehicles in one. They function as an RV, an SUV, and a work truck all in one. So he wanted something that he could use for a lot of different things. We put beds, sink, stove, refrigerator, toilet, outdoor shower. There's pop-up top, cabinets, seats, air conditioner, (laughs) furnace, propane tank, Mm -hmm. battery, inverter, all this stuff. And A swimming pool? Not yet. We're getting there. (laughs) Somebody did ask if we could put a hot tub in there. (laughs) So I hope they were kidding. It was so intelligently and well-designed, Mark, that when we decided to start Mod Vans, and we knew we wanted to be certified by the Recreational Vehicle Industry Association so customers could have access to RV financing, that there were very few changes we had to make because PJ had done such a good job. And I think part of it is when he was building it, he was building it for our family. So he built it, he designed it to be safe and for families. So he put a lot of quality and thought into the build. How long ago was that? He built the van out probably 2015, 2016. And then we started Mod Vans in October 2017. We made our first customer delivery in June of 2018. So three and a half years later, we've delivered close to 90 vehicles. And we're just trying to grow so we can build Mod Vans for everybody who wants them. (laughs) And they don't have to wait several months to get them. And are there multiple models available? There are. A year ago, we had one model. COVID's been a pro and a con. It's been a good opportunity for us because we use the time to develop new models. So we now have three based on three different size Ford Transit vans, the low roof, the medium roof, and the high roof. So we have three different models and we have different levels of components, so to speak. We have a new X-Series that is pretty exciting with a a huge lithium battery system and a cloud computing system and software that PJ has developed to run all the systems in the vans. Got a sneaky software in there. uh, Yeah, I think he uh, started missing software development. (laughs) Oh, yeah. They they actually do have Netflix, believe it or not. You get the uh, fire stick, and then we can put it in a little LCD flip-down TV. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I'm glad you brought up the COVID situation. That certainly must have been a huge boost to your business because I certainly know all of a sudden RV uh-huh. sales went through the roof. There is nothing available. The little Airstreams, you know, three-year, four-year, five-year wait. That must have been a nice accelerant for you. We have had great demand from the start. So it wasn't a huge change in demand for us. 
we have pretty consistent demand. I like to say if I had 100 vans built out sitting in the parking lot, I could sell them in a week. And that's pretty consistent for us. I mean, people yeah. love our vans. They want to buy them. Um, so COVID wasn't a challenge in that way. It was more supply challenges. And so it was, it was good for us to learn how to adapt, you know, find alternate vendors, alternate products. Required a lot of new engineering, but we really made the most of it. Like I said, we did develop new models and, you know, we had to change our model a little bit because the vans we ordered from Ford, we usually order vans directly from Ford and I didn't get any of my vans this year. So we had customers purchasing vans from dealers around the country and shipping them to us to build instead of us providing a van that we buy wholesale from Ford. So it's just been a good opportunity for us. We also spent a lot of time improving a lot of the features of our van. We redesigned cabinets. We redesigned the control panel, the wiring system. We built the two new models. We developed the lithium battery systems and the cloud computing systems. And so, you know, we've really taken advantage of the supply chain interruption. Yeah. That's pretty impressive. So what can I help you with? What do you want to chat about? There's so many ways we could go with this. Sure. So the biggest challenge that we have really faced as we go on is just trying to figure out how to scale production to kind of meet that demand that's already there. I mean, so just for example, we probably didn't have to put all those improvements into the van to keep selling. You know, we were selling with the van that we had when we started with. But, you know, some of the improvements have been on the manufacturing side, just figuring out how to build more efficiently and also to scale how to add management layers and stuff like that. But right now we have a major constraint in funding and we kind of already did the, let's grow a little bit slow. Let's take the next incremental step. We've done that a couple times. And then the second time, you know, we're just really seeing that we think it makes sense to really go to the next major level. So we're trying to figure out a few different paths to fund it. We were hoping maybe you could not necessarily know because probably haven't worked on exactly this kind of building, but maybe just give us some advice on some different options. So we funded the business so far. We started with an SBA loan for $280,000, and then we did regulation crowdfunding. We ended up raising about $3 million from 3,700 different investors, retail investors. Average investment size is about $300. So that's kind of what got us to where we are now. And then we can continue going down that path. The big brother to regulation crowdfunding is regulation A+. I kind of actually have done most of the legal setup that's needed for that. It's pretty involved, but anyway, I've been studying on it for a year and a half or something, so I figured out all the pieces for that. But there were some changes in the way that Apple does their advertising on the iPhone that kind of hit us hard on the crowdfunding marketing. Also, I started looking at our peers in that space that are using Regulation A+, and it just seems like they're not able to raise the amounts of money that it looks like we're going to need now and then down the road. So I've been looking at lists of private equity firms, for example, considering maybe having another go at venture capital. Let's just say, for example, that I wanted to at least give venture capital another try. What presentation materials do I really have to have? Do I have to have something super slick, or can I just kind of go with my default, which is tables and numbers without a lot of fancy graphs and stuff that just lay the information out, but not necessarily beautifully. Mm -hmm. So just as a quick, give me a sense of perspective. Do you have some rough idea of how much money you think you're trying to raise to take you to this next level? Yeah. So we've actually done quite a bit of research on this. So I don't want to go crazy, but I do want to take a pretty big incremental step. We want to move to Reno. We want to scale the manufacturing about 10 times from where we are. And we think it's going to take about $30 million. So we want to raise $30 million. 
So first of all, this is a great topic, which is one of the reasons I was really so interested in chatting with you. It's interesting because you're clearly both very analytical about things, which is great. But I'll start off by saying probably the most important thing to really be clear of is what you want out of this investor or investors. It seems so straightforward. Everything seems so Shark Tank-like, where you go up and you pitch, and then it purely comes down to, well, how much money do you want for what percentage of the company? And there's some arguing, and then off they go with the check. But there's a whole bunch of other pieces involved, and unless you know exactly what you want to get out of this, it's really hard to decide what the right path is. So let me give you just a couple of axes here. One is, of course, how do you factor in the importance of expertise versus money? That's a critical thing to ask because there's going to be some resources available to you which are willing to invest, will perhaps pay at a higher valuation, will perhaps make it an easier process for you, but may know almost nothing about areas that could help your business. Whereas there might be other investors who, for example, are not going to give you the same valuation. So they're going to require a higher percentage of the company for that amount of money, but they know a lot about the types of challenges you're going to be facing and can be invaluably helpful to you as a partner in terms of helping you grow the business, helping you navigate. Depending upon the stage you are and how much you think you might be looking for someone to help you navigate in certain areas, that's a valuable thing. For example, if you saw eventually in the future at some point, this ends up being a product that our company is going to be acquired by a car manufacturer. Then having a venture partner on your board who is deeply connected with all the executives at all the different car companies ends up being a very valuable person to have on the board. For example, at Netflix later on, we brought in, this case not as an investor, but as a board member, it was someone who had been one of the very, very high-level executive in Hollywood. Because at the time, what we said to ourselves is the money is fungible. We can get that from a lot of places. What we're looking for at this point is someone who can help us as we try to become much more of a presence in Hollywood. And it would be great to have somebody who can get us on the phone with the presidents of all the studios if we needed it. So that's what I mean by the difference between expertise and money. And factoring in to what degree those are relatively important to you is one way to approach it. The second thing that you might want to think about, and you actually hinted at this a little bit, is what you envision for yourself in the future. And to what degree you say to yourself, no, we envision this being a closely held private company for the foreseeable future. And we want to structure our people who invest with us on that basis. For example, your current crowdfunding investments, as you said, are all non-voting shares. So essentially, you've taken the money with full control over the company. As you move away from that, you have to surrender various things. And knowing what you're comfortable with and what your end game is helps you decide how to structure that. And there's lots of ways to do it. But let me give you a very basic A, B. So one, you say, I'm going to go purely with VC, with venture capitalists, who basically have a very simple business model. They're going to give you $30 million. They'll take a seat on the board, whatever you want to negotiate that way. But ultimately, what they want is they want their 30 million back and they want another 300 million or so, or hopefully even more than that. 
In other words, by taking the money, your obligation is basically you have to pursue a way that there eventually is some way for this person to achieve some liquidity, which is that they have the opportunity to get their money back. And that needs to be presented to them so that they see some way. Basically, if you go, oh no, this is going to be a fourth generation legacy family business. It's always going to be closely held. Your money's going to come in and lo and behold, you'll have a certain percentage of this company, but it's going to be very hard for you to get your money out. That's a tricky thing to do. So if you envision that, you have to know that in advance. Let's go the other direction. Let's say you go, hey, the reason that we built this initial camper van in the driveway is because we don't like working all the time. We like taking off for six weeks and driving uh, across Canada. And our envision here is we'll do it for two or three years and then we're out of here because then you begin moving in a different direction. And the reason I mentioned that direction is you mentioned private equity. Generally, private equity wants control. Generally, (laughs) private equity says, all right, we're going to give you the $30 million or we're going to give you more. We're going to give you enough money to do what you need to do, but we want 51% of the company. And the reason you're keeping 49% is not because you get 49% of the say, it's because we don't want to pay you cash. We don't want to buy your company entirely. We want you there running it and being in. But fundamentally, they own the company. They control the company and they decide what happens with it. It's friendlier than that. And it's not always like that. But generally, that's all private equity works. So I could go on for a long time, but that's the very, very, very first thing you have to go off and huddle about is what you want out of this, because that will narrow down the choices of how you approach it. Okay. Can I go on? Okay. I will say that we did have that conversation at the very beginning of Modvance, not so much about private equity, but the fact that we knew when we decided to pursue outside capital that we were committing to a path that would involve an exit for investors in as short a term and as high a valuation as possible. (laughs) We knew that when we kind of did that, we made a conscious choice to take that path. Yeah, and the thing is, just to clarify something, it's not an evil thing to want your money back if you're a VC. That's the world that I prefer to play in because I do like the let's go for it businesses. And you need a partner like that who's willing to put the capital behind your aspirations. But it does not need to be quick. I think the first investors, certainly the second investor in Netflix invested 20 21 years ago, and they still have not liquidated. They're still in. They could, they've had the IPO, but some people want to ride along with you. The thing that they want is they don't want lifestyle. So if they're sitting there and Lori pipes up and goes, you know, if I had a hundred vehicles on the lot tomorrow, I could sell them all. Their ears perk up and they go, okay, Let's go for it. And they come up with some plan to go full speed ahead to get to that point as quickly as possible. And you may be going, oh my God, that means hiring way more people than I wanted to. That means opening multiple factories. Now I'm on a plane flying around to slow down. But no, here's an opportunity. We're going to grab it without a factor about to what degree does this impact the uh, PJ and Lori show. Okay. Let's just, for the simplicity of it, let's just say you're going to go venture just so I could, in the, the reasonable <laughs> amount of time we have yeah. to take a sure. subject we could talk for months about and condense it into a 30-minute podcast. You asked a great question, which is, how do I go about this as I take another run at it? I'll quickly say, I think you've got a great shot at this being a professionally financed business because you have done the hard work of proving there's a there there. You have demonstrated 
you can design and build cars, and you've done so to create something which people actually want. So that's the magic of this whole thing. So you're in a great position to say, we're ready to scale. And this, that is a perfect opportunity to bring in financing where you're not spending hours a night, PJ, <laughs> working on bringing people in. 3,700 investors, holy shit. It was a lot of work. <laughs> yeah, it's crazy. When you could do 10 times that in 100th the time, it's a compelling proposition. And gain expertise at the same time that few of these 3,700 would be able to offer you in terms of connections, in terms of been there, done that. So what are they looking for? And don't over-index on what is going to be presented. What they're looking for, there's not certain numbers. This is not a test. There's not certain right answers. What you want to think about is what are they going to take away intellectually and emotionally from the meeting? And yes, there'll be a time later for the due diligence where they want to dig in to all of these numbers. But in this initial presentation, and quite frankly, the first presentation, which is with the first partner, where they go, this is incredible, and love it enough to bring it to the partners meeting. Those two meetings are way more based on what they're taking away intellectually and emotionally than on some financial analysis. What they're looking for is, in my opinion, three things. The first thing is they're taking the measure of the founders or of the people who are going to be running this business. Because for them, this is absolutely you bet on the jockey, not on the horse. They're going to say, do these people understand the business? Do they understand the product? Do they understand the process? Do they really understand their customers and the supply chain? Do they understand the competition? Do they understand the trends? Do these people get it? And so you'll see that's not... Is the number 7 million or is it 65, six and a half million? It's, do they understand it and have a grasp of this stuff? They want to make sure that you have your hands on the wheel. Meaning, do you really know how to steer this business effectively? Because there's going to be times where a year in, you're going to miss a number. You're going to have a forecast and it's going to slide. Something's going to come up that you're going to miss. And that happens. But... There's a difference between the founders who call up and go, oh my God, we're down 30%. I have no idea what the hell this is about. Let me try, I'm gonna try and figure it out. As opposed to the ones who call up and go, we've been watching this number for several months now and it looks like it is not gonna recover. We're gonna be 10% under. But we put in place a plan a few months ago and we're pretty much on the way there to we think mitigate this and be able to recover. In other words, they wanna see that this person knows what they're going for and has the ability to get there, that they have their hands on the wheel. And the last thing they're looking for, this is out of you, is do they trust you? Do they trust that you'll be a partner who will give it to them straight? Do they trust you that you'll be a person who keeps their best interests at mind? Do they think you'll be transparent with them in running the business? Which means coming in and not trying to snow people or sell people, but demonstrating with your confidence and your clarity and your conviction that you get it and that what you're going to present to them is honest and true and that your excitement for this is genuine. So that's the you. That, in my opinion is probably the most important thing that you have to do if you're presenting to an investor. Then there's the two other pieces. And this is the, in your business, in your case, reasonably straightforward. Number one of the two, they're gonna wanna understand your traction. They're gonna know 
how much of this have you solved? And to what degree have you demonstrated that there's a there there? Just imagine, if you could, the difference between the pitch now and the pitch in 2016, where it would be PJ and Lori waving their hands and saying, this is really incredible. We have this great idea that we think we can take this thing that we hacked together in the driveway and make a company which sells these. And we think eventually we'll get to the point where if I had a hundred in the lot, they'd all sell in a day. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> I don't believe you. Well, now, five years later, they believe you because you go, we have demonstrated the following. We've solved the technical problems of how to design these things that they work. And number two, we know how to manufacture them. We know how long it takes to manufacture them. You know what kind of margins we can generate in the manufacturing. We know how to sell them. You have this great evidence of traction. And you want to quickly and succinctly lay out where you've come, how much you know, and here's the important part, how much risk you've eliminated. Because in 2016, the risks are huge. Can they really build do this at scale? Can they really hire enough people to build these? Can they really sell them? Do these things really work? Et cetera, et cetera. So now you're saying, here's all the risk we've taken off the table. This stuff is done, proven, done. Okay, that's part two. After presenting you, what's your traction? The big one is it clearly stating what this next round is meant to demonstrate. Here's where the business has gone so far. We're great. We've proven all these things. We believe there's a huge opportunity to expand. So now you think what the risks are. The risks are, can we expand? Can we really scale up, what do you say, by 10? Is that right? I guess it's 3x for the first bump. It's going from like 10 a month to 30 a month. So Great. So it's 3x. But either way, yeah. you know that that's going to require different levels of, you're already having supply chain issues. So now they get even worse. You're going to have to move and reset up someplace else and not everyone's going to come with you. You have to deal with, now you're selling a different amount. You were selling before one model, now you're selling three models. In other words, there's new risks involved in this next set of scale. And so what you need to do is be clear you understand what the challenges are. And here's why I'm confident I can do it. And here's what happens if we're successful. Because what that third part is doing is saying, you're going to invest $30 million and I'll just make it up. You're going to invest at a $120 million valuation or whatever, because you know usually $150 million post money, but they are looking to usually own 20% or something like that. Mm -hmm. But you want to say that basically you're going to invest at $150 million post money valuation. If we do these things right, it's pretty clear it will be a $450 million valuation. In other words, you're letting it be clear what's the risk, what's the reward. You said, I understand what the risk is here. And in your case, the risk is scale. Do we have what it takes? The risk that you're worrying about, Mr. Investor, is does PJ and Lori have the skills to scale up our manufacturing 3X? And do they have the sales skills to sell 3X? And does the market support 3x. And can we accomplish that for $30 million? Let me show you how. And if we do, what will this company look like? Well, it should look like a billion dollar company. So now we've done a 6x on your money in 18 months. Again, caveat, making shit up. But it's how they're going to think. So there it is. It's simple. Show who you are, show your traction, be very clear what this next round is meant to do and how, if you do it, it can be financially lucrative for everyone involved. 
class dismissed. <laughs> I think you answered the question about Reg A plus versus try to go for VC. At least in my mind, you did. I hope the answer was, holy crap, we are definitely doing crowdfunding again. <laughs> <laughs> so. You're thinking VC is a better way to do that? My reluctance really comes from my prior experience. So when we did the original software thing and we had about a million dollars of orders on the books, me and all my software buddies thought this would be a no-brainer. Right? We could just call the VCs that we had worked with in the past. And with that kind of traction, they would be at least interested. I did get to present to quite a few VCs, but they all kind of said, oh, we don't invest in this kind of business. So I guess I have concerns that that would repeat itself again. And, you know, I'd kind of get bogged down. It's kind of sad to present over and over again and kind of get the same up and down cycle. Well, if you pitch to Andreessen Horowitz, you're going to get shut down in like two seconds because it doesn't take a lot of research to look at what their investment premises are. And I hate to clue it to you, but hardware and automotive manufacturing is not on their list of investable premises. So part of this is you doing your homework and identifying not just which funds do your kind of business, but then at those funds, which of the partners makes investments in your type of business. Because unless you find that right match, yes, you're going to get shot down right away. And you're correct. They're not going to tell you. They're going to go, come back to us when you're in a little bit later stage. Or they're going to, we want some proof, blah, 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 blah. Yeah. But if you find... The firm who, again, making it up, who is the investor in Polaris? Who is the investor in, uh, you know, all these little relatively small companies who at some point had to be small and had to have some interesting idea and were trying to move to the next level. There's people whose premise is that there's going to be an explosion in whatever category you see yourself in. That's their whole investment premises. And they're looking for companies that meet that premise. And then once you find that fund, there is a certain partner. Who is the person who made the, I don't know the category, but you do. You do know who all your competitors are, who are the other companies who are doing mods, who are selling Airstream competitors, who are Airstream. Those investors know that space and they are actively looking for people who have the opportunities that you might be able to deliver to them. And then at that fund, there is a one partner or two who specializes in that category. And so this is not making a hundred pitches to random people. It's making five to people who are looking for you. And If you find that, I won't say it's easy, but it's not crazy. And then here's the other piece. When are you targeting trying to do this now? (laughs) So we have a couple big projects that we're wrapping up for the end of the year. And I'm kind of working on this in the background, which is part of the reason I reached out to you at this time. But yeah, as soon as we get these couple projects just completed and out the door, which should be the end of the year. Okay, well then here's some advice. Here's what I'd like you to do a year ago, please. (laughs) Oh yeah, you don't have the hot tub. You have the time machine built in probably, right? You have the Back to the Future DeLorean. Next version. If you can go back a year... What I'd like you to do is I'd like you to do the research on who these VCs are. I'd like you to reach out to them. This is a year ago. And say to him, I am not raising money now. I'm not ready. But I think maybe in a year, year and a half, I'm going to think about doing a raise. I would love to just to sit you down and walk you through what we're doing. And I guarantee that's the easiest yes you're ever going to get from a VC. Have lunch. Let me share with you what we're working on. I just want to get your idea. You ask her the exact question that you asked me. Is I'm really kind of struggling now with, do I do private equity or should I go venture? How are funders thinking about this word? How do I mitigate, involve this person in understanding your business before it's you sitting across the desk asking for money? You're late. 
but it's okay. You establish these relationships. You can always do that now if you want, unless you really need the money soon, in which case then you're starting a process. But for those people out there listening who do have the time and think at some point in the future that you do want to raise money, it's never too early to start the conversation because it's much, much easier to get time from someone if you're not pressing them to make a decision on the spot but instead want to get acquainted because part of what their job is is to understand what else is going on and they'll be happy to take that meeting. Oh, interesting. Makes yeah. sense. So, I don't know, guys, I hope this helped. You guys have some really interesting roads ahead of you. So, but listen, let's check in again. Maybe in six, nine months when you've had a chance by then to have navigated the funding world. I'm curious to hear how it went and then what the new challenges are. That would be great. Yeah, that'd Thanks, be great. Mark. Good luck, guys. Go get them. All right, Mark. We'll let you know how, Thank you. how it goes. Thanks for uh, inviting us. Okay. Bye. PJ and Lori are in a great position to become a professionally financed business. They've developed a great product from a place of personal inspiration. They have strong consumer interest, and they've demonstrated their own ability to manufacture. From here on out, it's a matter of how well they can find the right investor for them how well they can articulate the risk rewards of their business, and finally, how well they can convey themselves as competent and trustworthy founders. I can't wait to hear how they do, and I look forward to catching up with them in a few months down the Mod Vans Road. Well, that's all for today, and thanks to my guests for entrusting their business to me for a little while. I look forward to hearing back from them in a few months to see if my advice helped. In the meantime, if you want to be a guest on That Will Never Work, I've made it really easy. Just go to markrandolph.com forward slash guest, fill out the form, and leave a voice message right there on the site. While you're there, sign up to get my weekly entrepreneurial advice delivered right to your inbox. Or connect with me on Twitter at mbrandolph, or on Instagram at thatwillneverwork. Or my newest attempt at denying my age on TikTok, where I promise you won't ever find me dancing without a shirt on. Thanks again for listening. Don't forget to smash that like button and leave me a review at Apple Podcasts. I'll see you next time. Audiation.